All right, so we are on study number uh, seven tonight, and we're going to be looking at the last chapter of the um, the narrative part of the book of Daniel. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in chapter uh, six tonight. So uh, this particular chapter uh, is telling us about uh, Daniel, and now he is going to face the wrath of the ruler uh, named Darius. So as we get started tonight, there's going to be a couple of uh, slides that uh, you might not necessarily have in your handout, but I just have a couple of quick points that I will show you. So in this section, we've been building upon some of the resistance that we've been seeing, and uh, it began in chapter one with the refusal to violate the Torah dietary laws by eating the king's food. In chapter three, there was a refusal to be in fidelity, to bow down to the image of gold of Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter four, as Nebuchadnezzar steps out and basically pats himself on the back saying, look at the great Babylon that I have built. Uh, there is the dream that predicts his uh, fortune uh, being reversed. And then again, after that, he repents and his uh, fortune is restored to him. And then chapter five, we saw a reversal of position. Here's Belshazzar, who uh, is desecrating the vessels from the temple of uh, the Jews. And uh, there's the handwriting on the wall and uh, his uh, kingdom reign is going to come down. Now the focus is upon Daniel, and there's another edict that comes from another ruler by the name of Darius, and uh, Daniel will refuse to obey this law, and as a result, he will face uh, the consequences of civil disobedience. So the outline of the chapter is uh, right here at the bottom of the screen. Uh, there's a prologue and then a conspiracy against Daniel his act of civil disobedience, uh, this conspiracy uh, will be brought to uh, have Daniel punished, and then the miraculous delivery out of the lion's den, and Daniel will be restored to a very key position, uh, position that he holds. Now, in this particular uh, chapter, there is a chiasm that will take place. I'll show you that on the next slide. But uh, there's a comparison here that's going on. And if you were to do a close study of chapter three and chapter six, you'll find that they're outlined basically the same. And the two stories uh, are about God stepping in, delivering the three friends of Daniel and then Daniel himself. And uh, both stories uh, suit the situation of the second century Jews as they face the wrath of Antiochus Epiphanes um, and uh, his attempt to get the Jews to worship Zeus. And uh, here in this particular chapter, uh, in chapter six, what we're going to see is uh, two uh, immutable laws, the laws of the Medes and the Persians versus uh, the law of Daniel's God, that is the Torah. So that's kind of a summarization of uh, what is happening as we come into this last chapter. And the architecture of this chapter is called a chiasm. If you'll notice here, there's, um, there's some parallels. A chiasm are, is working as a, uh, a, a V, if you will. Here's the V on its side that uh, has corresponding parallels, but the middle is the main point. So the, uh, chapter six begins with Daniel as a satrap, the enemy's plot, but then you notice the parallel. Daniel is the best satrap. He is confirmed as the best satrap at the end of the chapter. His enemies are plotting against him, but it will, uh, it will turn upon them. And there's poetic justice that takes place where the enemies are destroyed. The king is going to make a fatal decree that Daniel's going to be caught in the trap. And then the king makes a saving decree uh, about uh, Daniel's God. Daniel's arrested, sentenced to death. The parallel is Daniel is released from the lion's den. 
And the main point of the chapter is Daniel is delivered from the consequences of violating this uh, immutable law that um, has been put in place. Uh, and this law that is put in place is such that he has been tricked into it. And uh, he wants to get out from under it. And uh, the law of the Medes and the Persians will not allow him to get out from under how their law system works. So we'll get to that in just a second. But do you have any any comments on the first couple of slides here? Okay, so now here's where your handout picks up. Uh, in uh, chapter six, uh, verses one through three, you have the prologue um, that introduces us to Darius the Mede. Now I put that in quotation marks uh, because uh, there's a little bit of debate among scholars as to who is being talked about here. Um, you'll notice at verse 31 of chapter five, it's named uh, the next ruler after Belshazzar is named Darius the Mede. However, when you get to chapter six, the Mede uh, is dropped. It just says Darius, and that's how he's referred to throughout the course of the chapter. So anytime there's uh, changes like that, a lot of times scholars look into that and they try to correspond with who this actually is being referred to. So some scholars suggest this is Darius the first, um, and he reigned from 522 to 486 BCE. Uh, he's a pretty notable individual in secular history. Uh, it's believed that he seized the throne after a time of political instability. What we do know is there is a reference in some of this uh, reference to this particular individual where he divides his territories up into satrapies. Now, you'll notice in verse um, uh, two here, that uh, the mention of satraps are there. So let me read the first three verses, and then we'll come back to this. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. Now, it's interesting here that uh, the different uh, translations, in English translations, use different words here in this particular uh, translation, it says administrators. In the Revised Standard Version, uh, they use the word presidents, three presidents, which is kind of an interesting way of designating their position. It goes on and says these satraps would be accountable to these three administrators so that the king would be not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit so the king planned to set him over the whole realm. So at the very bottom there of verse three, I think you get a hint as to why this conspiracy is going to come about. Um, it appears that this Darius could be Darius the first. Is Darius the Mede a different individual? We don't really know, but that's beside the point. Uh, this particular ruler is going to elevate Daniel to another step above these other two Jew, uh, 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 non-Jewish um, administrators. And in a moment, we're going to see that I think there is some racism that's going on here, because here is a conquered individual, a Jewish man that would be elevated above the national. So just keep that in the back of your mind. So Whoever this ruler is, what we do know is the text points out that Daniel, like Joseph of previous generations, is entrusted with large amounts of responsibility, and uh, he is the one that is going to be basically second in command, which is interesting because last week we made the comment that by the time chapter six rolls around in these court legends that have been recorded, Daniel is probably a much older man at this point. And um, when you looked at that particular opening screen here that I had, that's kind of reflected in that picture, isn't it? That by that time, Daniel is not the young 
uh, teenager that resisted the uh, Nebuchadnezzar, but he's an individual that has survived uh, through the course of different regimes. So here is um, a word that is found in Persian um, uh, references, and it's a, a term called sarkin, and it's a point to, uh, it's describing these different territories that um, is a way of administrating and ruling over the huge kingdom that um, these various empires have at this point in history. Any thoughts there? Okay, so now let's look at the conspiracy. This is in verses four through nine. The administrators and satraps therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. That's a, a huge difference with the type of politicians that we deal with. He's above board. Uh, usually you dig deep enough uh, in politics you'll find that there's some corruption that is taking place somewhere along the line. I don't care what party it is. And it says here, now these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So he's, they're going to use his um, allegiance to Torah against him. Verse 6. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and the Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So Darius signed the written edict. So here, I think, at the outset is some tension, I think, we see between uh, these individuals that are not Jews, along with the Jewish exiles. And we might say that uh, they are mad because this alien, this foreigner, uh, is, is going to be elevated and promoted. And so I think what's happening here is the suspicion that normally works against the alien and foreigner is being used against Daniel. There's no... Uh, there's no corruption that uh, they can find, no matter how much they dig. So what they're going to do is put a little bit of fear into uh, the back of the mind of Darius. Um, is he up to something? Could he possibly uh, lead an insurrection of some sort against the kingdom? Uh, Darius, I don't think, has any hesitation to elevate Daniel at all. But these individuals kind of work through the back door. And as they do so, they are going to establish um, this ordinance uh, to, um, to say no one can pray to any other god except the king, which many times in the ancient Near East, the king was considered um, a representative of God on earth. And so the king will go ahead and sign this. However, What's interesting at the heart of this, I think, is uh, the stories of the Jewish success of the three young men in the fiery furnace. Uh, all of this, I think, probably heightens uh, the racism and resentment that's probably taking place uh, among those that are the nationals. Um, now, this is a different regime, obviously, here in chapter six than Babylon. However, there's kind of an awareness of the Jewishness of Daniel and his dedication to the Torah. And that's what it said in verse five. The only thing we're going to be able to work against him is a law of his God that works against our laws. So what's happening here, I think, is 
the pitting of two different traditions against each other. That is the Medes and the Persians versus the Jews. And so that's kind of at the heart and in the background uh, that is taking place while um, while the king is um, duped, really, into a, uh, a law that he will regret that he signed, but he has to live by. Some thoughts there? So now Daniel, knowing that this law has been put in place, has to make a choice. Is he going to back down from something which seems to be part of his religious tradition to pray on a regular basis? It mentions here in the text three times a day. So I want you to notice uh, it says here in uh, verse 10, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went up into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem and three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So this isn't something unusual. It appears this is part of his uh, religious ritual and rhythm. And uh, then what we find is verse 11. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they were doing some reconnaissance, and as they do so, uh, they've got some material that they can work with, and they're going to accuse Daniel. Now, the question comes up here, in light of the fact that Daniel uh, learned of the document, he went up into his room and he opens the window. Uh, the question is, did he always open his window and face Jerusalem, or is this something new? Um, is he doing this intentionally to um, show his civil disobedience against this particular law? So there's a lot of ways of thinking about this particular um, uh, couple of verses. So Daniel knows what's going to happen. He goes up into his room, opens the window, and prays anyway. And these individuals that have been doing some reconnaissance uh, now have the evidence that they need, and they're going to go straight back to King Darius. Any thoughts on that section? Well, I have the NIV, mm -hmm. and it says he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say he opened them. It just said the windows opened in the, towards Jerusalem. So, you know, maybe they, I don't know back then if the windows were always open, you know, if it was just a hole. Very I have well no could clue. Be. A very but well could you, be. If you think of modern day Muslims, they pray towards the east. Yeah. So these people who set them up would know to look in that direction. I'm, I am. I'm pretty sure that probably he had been observed doing this ritual many times. Oh, over. yeah. Yeah, that so I think. I don't think it was something hard that they had to figure out. But they did have the ammunition that they needed, obviously, to go yeah. to the thing. <clears throat> Good. Excellent. Okay, that takes us now to the conspiracy coming to fruition. In verse 12, you have um, the uh, paragraph, and there's a lot of, as you can see on the screen, uh, there's a lot of text here because there's it's interesting, uh, this paragraph and what's going on. So let's read verses 12 through 15. It says, so they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days, any person who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. The king answered, as a law of the Medes and the Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, there's that kind of racist dig, has ignored you. 
the king and the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. And as soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased, and he set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went together to the king and said, You know, your majesty, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So he's caught in his own, um, his own rule. And what I think uh, is interesting here is he probably hits his head and goes, oh, no, I never thought this would happen. Um, and because you see the fondness that he has uh, for Daniel and uh, these other individuals have elements of hate, resentment and other things going on. So these counselors repeat the same decree that was mentioned earlier in the chapter and so uh, Daniel is charged with the words that echo uh, the, uh, the edict that he has already signed. So he now um, is an individual that is at the mercy of Darius. Uh, but you see Darius is troubled by the whole thing. Uh, I, I think as... As you read this chapter, it appears Darius is even more agitated than Daniel is, because later we're going to see that he is going to fast and pray on behalf of Daniel as he's in the lion's den. Um, he's it, it looks as though he's making an effort to try to release Daniel, get him out from under this uh, verdict, but he's bound by his own law. And uh, he can't get out from un under it. So even Daniel's uh, essential position does not spare him from being rounded up by the machinery of the empire, which is much different than in other countries a lot of times where there is not a level justice system uh, that often takes place. Um, uh, sometimes the elite have opportunities to get out from under these things uh, that the ordinary citizen cannot. But Daniel here is an individual um, that is primed in many respects in this story to allow God to show his power once again. And I think at the heart of this chapter is this ordinance um, is not just defying um the people that are under Darius, but in many ways it's defying God as well, because um, there is this, um, that you can't change the order of this, indicating kind of ultimate power on the half, behalf of the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel uh, yeah. is at the mercy here of, of Darius. And we see that uh, Darius will say here, uh, may God rescue you uh, from this. Um, so in verse 16 through 18, take a look, it says, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No, ver no diversions uh, were brought to him and he could not sleep. So here is this king that uh, is... Uh, he knows Daniel's guilty, but he knows that Daniel is not a threat to his kingdom. And he is trying to get Daniel out from under, but he is trapped. He's kind of handcuffed to his own rule. And uh, his, um, his, his sympathy uh, toward Daniel is evident. And I think what we find here is that he is an individual that whether he ever fasted and prayed before, he felt 
the need to do this because in a moment we're going to see that in the morning he's going to cry out to see if he can hear Daniel's voice from the lion's den. So evidently a lion's den uh, was um, uh, a hole in the ground and uh, with a some type of a stone or something that's placed over it. So obviously it's not only the prisoner that's thrown into the hole, but the lion is thrown as well, which is much different than this picture here. Whoops. Uh, you know, so this looks as though it's part of a building. That's probably not an accurate. Um, <laughs> okay. But it looks cool. So, so um uh, you know, in art, you allow for uh, artistic license. So, <laughs> so Daniel's going to be punished. Now, here's what I want you to do, though. Before we move ahead, there's kind of a double working of this idea of a lion. Yes, it's a physical animal. However, the lion is the king of the beasts, and the lion also represents something that's found in some of the writings of the prophets as well. So if you keep your thumb here and you flip back to Jeremiah for a second. In Jeremiah chapter four, uh, we see that this, um, this imagery of a lion was used to speak of the empire of Babylon. So in chapter four, if you come on down to um, verse, let's get a running start at it. Uh, verse five, it says, declare in Judah, proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the ram's horn throughout the land, cry out loudly and say, assemble yourselves and let's flee to the fortified cities. Lift up a signal flag toward Zion, run for cover, don't stand still, for I am bringing disaster from the north, a crushing blow, and here it is, a lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his lair to make your land a waste. Your cities will be reduced to uninhabited ruins. So the imagery, the metaphor that is used for the nation of Babylon uh, is a lion representing uh, the ability to devour. Now, while you're in Jeremiah, flip over to chapter 50. And again, we're going to see this is something that's used by the prophets as a word picture. In chapter 50, if you make your way down to verse uh, 17, it says here, um, Israel is a stray lamb chased by lions. Now, obviously, the plural lions here represents two different empires, not just one. The first who devoured him was the king of Assyria. The last one who crushed his bones was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So I think it's appropriate in the telling of this court tale that the image of a lion uh, is something that was mentioned through the prophets and is found also in some of the Psalms as well. And so the rabbis often thought of a lion's den as more, more than just a cage for these animals, but as a metaphor for the exile itself, that uh, the nation has been thrown into the lion's den and they had been captured and they had been eaten alive, figuratively speaking, uh, by the Assyrians, uh, by the Babylonians, by the Persians. And um, and so there's kind of a double imagery, I think, that's going on here. One is physical. The other is symbolic uh, of what the whole nation is going through. Some thoughts there? Yeah, Larry, tonight was the first time hearing this. Um, the way it, I don't know whether it was the way you presented it or what, but it kind of mimics or parallels the book of Esther in the decrees, and then they find a way around it. Great observation. Now, remember, the book of Esther is set during the time of the Persian Empire as well. 
So uh -huh. we're talking uh, about very similar things. In fact, you'll see some common words as well between the book of Esther and the book of Daniel, like satraps as yeah. a, an official position, that type of thing. So we're talking approximately the same era between uh, the court tales of Daniel and um, and the book of Esther as well. That's a great observation. So, yeah, there's a workaround. You're right. There's a workaround going yeah. on in that book as well. So, good observation. Anybody yeah. else? So, uh, here I think is an interesting element. Um, so, you might say there are in the Bible some literary lions as well. And um, these animals that are ferocious that nobody wants to mess with is the perfect illustration of some of the fears of, uh, of mankind. So I don't know if you've ever had the chance to uh, see a lion up close and personal at the zoo or things like that, but they can be very intimidating. And um, and so it's no surprise that they have been called the king of the beasts. If you've watched some nature shows and see their ability to chase down their prey and all that type of thing. But it's also interesting how it plays into the rule of empires as well. So in Egypt and throughout Mesopotamia, Emperors often used images of lions as a way of illustrating their strength. And you would find murals um, that uh, depict a king hunting lions as a way of showing the king's strength and that type of thing. So the lion's pit uh, is in many ways something more than just the physical element. Daniel, uh, this one who had lived a, an above board and upright life has been thrown into the teeth of the lion, uh, which is, is representative of the empire itself. And so this image of a lion, uh, I think is, is a literary image as well as a part of the story that is being told about Daniel's life. And, um, I, here is one of the reliefs that um, it, it is believed uh, to have been used uh, throughout Babylon. You can see here that uh, this particular um, this particular relief that I kind of used as kind of the backdrop uh, for this particular study is a um, it was a part of the way that leads through the Ishtar Gate, um, which was sometimes called Bit Akitu, or the House of the New Year's Festival. So the Ishtar Gate, um, built by Nebuchadnezzar, was a glazed brick structure and was decorated with different figurines, uh, bulls and dragons, and uh, they represent different gods. Um, one that you've heard before is uh, Marduk, but um, north of this particular gate, on the roadway, there, there were these glazed uh, standing figures of lions. And this particular relief of a lion uh, is associated with the worship of Ishtar in, in the Empire of Babylon, which was the goddess of love and war, which is an interesting combination, in my opinion, love and war. But more importantly, kind of reflected uh, the protectors of the street leading to the temple and that type of thing. So uh, I want to show you before we come bring back uh, up our uh, participants here, I want to show you this. We uh, had the opportunity to see kind of a similar type of thing um, when we were in France and um, the Arc of Triumph, uh, I, can, I think can be kind of a, a temporary example where it stands at the end of the Champs Elysees, um, the the huge street that uh, leads up to this. And what's fascinating is how these different monuments often um, often become memorials uh, to 
uh, em not emperors, but war heroes and, and that type of thing. And so here um, on the uh, Ark of Triumph are the names of different French victories and generals uh, that are inscribed on the inner and outer surfaces of this. But what's fascinating is the name. The Champs Elise represents the Elysian Fields, which was the place for the dead heroes in Greek mythology. So the name and the structure and the recording of the different names of uh, uh, leaders and generals and uh, those type of things all can be seen with this one thing that still stands at the center of the city of Paris. So when we go back to this, you have a similar type of thing that's happening with the use of lions. And I just find that kind of a interesting thing that this is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, but the importance of using lions for intimidation is also found in the Mede and Persian Empire under Darius's rule. So let me see if you have uh, some uh, thoughts that um, on any of this at all. So now we come to the the miraculous delivery and the reversal of fortune as well for Daniel. Verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him, and also before you, your majesty, I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den, and when Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den, they, their children, and their wives. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So there's a reversal of fortune. Daniel the condemned is now Daniel the elevated. And these other two administrators that cooked up this plot they and their family are thrown into the lion's den where they're consumed. So a couple of interesting observations in this particular paragraph is God sent his angel to protect Daniel. Uh, this again harkens to uh, the fourth man in the furnace as well. Uh, someone that uh, appears to intervene on behalf of uh, the Jewish faithful. So in this reversal of fortune, what we find is the king is the one that has been fasting and praying and hoping all along that Daniel is will survive this, and he does. Um, what is amazing, though, is that that doesn't stop him, though, from using the lion's den. So there's compassion toward Daniel, but not compassion toward these other two that were on the same level as, as Daniel was. So it's just kind of interesting that Darius is, um, is not uh, an individual that shows compassion to everyone, obviously. Um, here we find uh, another thing going on where as Daniel is kind of liberated from this immutable decree that cannot be reversed. Um, what we find is that um, Darius himself proclaims uh, a, a prophetic announcement as the chapter closes about this God and uh, how everyone is to give homage to the God of Daniel because of what they have seen before their very eyes. 
And what is taking place here is that God even uses the heathen uh, to uh, proclaim his glory. Uh, throughout the scriptures, I give you one example here of Balaam in Numbers chapter 22 that wanted to curse the Israelites and ended up blessing them instead. So here's this miraculous delivery. Now, remember, I think all of this is playing into the thoughts of the later generations that's suffering under Antiochus Epiphanes. This is their hope. They feel they are being consumed by the lion and they are hoping that they will be able to be freed from the clutch of this particular madman that has desecrated their temple. So we're going to come down to the last paragraph, but do you have any thoughts or comments before we do? So Daniel's going to be restored. So the the final few verses of the chapter, again, each chapter in the book of Daniel is pretty lengthy. So again, you look, you're, you're looking at 28 verses, but it's the way the story is told that you sit up and take notice of reversals that take place and the detail that is given in the story to, to uh, have the, uh, the oomph of the, the restoration and reversal. So take a look at verse 25. And King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So he's even going to outlast um, Darius's reign, and Cyrus will be the, uh, the ruler that will allow the Jews uh, to return to their homeland. So... I guess the best way to kind of summarize this closing paragraph is Daniel was thrown to the lions legally because of this immutable decree. Um, but what we find is in the end, um, he is restored. He is elevated. You might say he is resurrected. So in, in this particular imagery, the idea of going down to the place of death, going down to the netherworld and being raised back up is, is what God is up to. This is what the type of work God does is resurrection and bringing life out of death. And I think that's uh, what's happening in the closing paragraph here. Um, there, This is a God of resurrection and hope. So again, this plays to the audience later that need that message very, uh, very importantly to their survival. So thoughts there? So a couple more slides. So uh, in this chapter, I think there is the element of uh, imprisonment and exile is kind of playing in the background of all this. Um, this imprisonment of these individuals becomes the story of the whole nation. They are the ones like Daniel and the three friends that are caught up in the consequences of powerful rulers that are out of control. Um, these are heroes to the di diaspora Jews that will hear their story later. But I think also Daniel becomes a model of resistance. Uh, he is an individual that, interestingly enough, Mahatma Gandhi uh, cites Daniel as a model citizen. Now, you remember Gandhi and his um, work always uh, used nonviolent resistance. And uh, Gandhi, in some of his writings, used Daniel is an illustration of nonviolent resistance. And 
uh, see how God took care of him. And this is an individual that is not Jewish. Obviously, Gandhi's not Jewish, um, but he appreciates the story as a way of encouraging his own people too um, to continue to resist and to work for justice. So, any thoughts there? One last slide. So um, I think the theological assessment of this chapter can uh, be summarized in a few different statements. I, I think this story kind of offers a foretaste of uh, God conquering the foes of his people. And like I said just a moment ago, I think even the pit kind of represents the, uh, the victory of God over death itself, which in our parlance and language we'd say is resurrection the ability to overcome death with life. Um, also, it's interesting that um, the idea of immutable laws is interesting. So we put laws into place, and then uh, we have to live by the consequences of those laws. Um, Darius has to live out um, that uh, law that he is signed and put into place. And he should have probably taken more time to think through the consequences of what that might mean. I don't think he probably gave much thought to it as as a ruler, his ego was probably stroked there a little bit. We'll have nobody else worship anything but you, Darius, over 30 days. Um, but I think it also brings up an interesting question. Is God trapped by his laws, the ones that he makes? Um, there's an interesting angle in the scriptures that there's several times that it says um, God changed his mind. Um, and I think it's interesting as well that in the story of the book of Hosea, it appears that compassion overrides even the laws that are put into place. So if you go to the right in your Bible, I do want to read a couple of verses out of Hosea. So just go right past Daniel and you'll find Hosea and go to chapter 11. Now in chapter 11, um, the whole chapter really is about God's love for his people. And that's the way the chapter begins. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So it recounts the Exodus and tells us, obviously, that God provided a miraculous deliverance. But it goes on and says, but they kept sacrificing to the Baals, false gods, and burnt offerings to idols. And so you know, God says, you know, when that type of thing happens, exile is around the corner. And um, and so he constantly has this, this heart for them. Verse four, I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them, I was like the one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. So you have this wonderful, beautiful imagery but verse 7 says, ah, my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. And then verse 8 is fascinating. It says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I have had a change of heart. My com compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. Fascinating. I've had a change of heart. Compassion is overriding immutable laws and consequences that really they deserved. And he says, I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim. 
Why? I'm God and not man. I wonder, coming back to our story in Daniel, if Darius could have said, um, yeah, it's an immutable law of the Medes and the Persians, but I'm king. And if I want to change the law, I'll change the law. And um, you, you get that sense here in Hosea that God changes his mind and he has the right to change his mind because he's God. I wonder if Darius could have done the same thing. Or if it's by virtue of the fact that he could not change it, was it an unjust law in the first place? Because it did not allow any room for compassion. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Any thoughts? I don't know. I mean, you don't know the whole political situation at the time. I mean, he may, he may have been, you know, he may not have been as powerful a leader as you, as you might think. And had he changed the law, it might have potentially unseated him. I don't know. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And, <clears throat> you know, we don't even know exactly which individual we're talking about here. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what scholars are. So you're exactly right. Uh, we don't know the full story. But it, uh, I just find it interesting that he's entrapped by his own law. And uh, he's fortunate because he really did want to deliver Daniel from the consequences of it, that God intervened. Other thoughts? Mm. Nothing? Mm. Okay, well, um, next week we get into the juicier, juicier part of Daniel because now Daniel is going to have visions and Daniel needs help interpreting them. Up to this point, it's been Nebuchadnezzar that has had dreams and Daniel was able to give interpretation to the dreams. But now Daniel in chapter seven and following will have visions and he's perplexed. And so God is going to have to intervene to bring about an understanding of what uh, he is seeing. So it, the whole texture of the book changes from these stories of court tales uh, to what is called apocalyptic type of literature, which is a whole different type of literary device. Um, so it'll be interesting to see this change. And um, and then we'll have to kind of work through it to kind of figure out what is being envisioned and um, are there elements of it that are still uh, unfulfilled, uh, things that are still waiting uh, in the future. So uh, we'll deal with that as we come to each chapter. But any closing thoughts? No? Well... I hope you guys have a great uh, rest of the week, and uh, we'll see you uh, next Wednesday, okay? Uh, get into chat. Okay. Tell okay. Tell, tell hi. Hi. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.